My name is Mark Cosgrove, Cinema Curator at Watershed, and welcome to Watershed's December podcast. This month, uh, we're looking at all things magic. Um, there has been two magicians in residence here at Watershed in our pervasive media studio. She's Stuart Nolan and Kieran Kirtland, who I'm with for this podcast. Um, and they've been exploring magic in relationship to technology. Um, and I'm also delighted to welcome Mike Fraser from the University of Bristol Computing Department. And we're going to have a conversation about the residency to find out more about what's been going on. And as part of the residency, we've also been looking at the relationship between magic and film. And running through the month of December, there will be a series of screenings and events which are exploring the relationship between magic and film. Something that we'll come on to discuss later on. But if I can just start and welcome Stuart and Kieran, and if you could just um, say a bit about what is the, the the residency exactly that you've been doing? Uh, for me personally, I was looking at the kind of the idea of maker magic. So if you think about uh, throughout history with magicians, um, some of the greatest magicians have been really good at interweaving magic and technology. And there's a classic example of this, this guy called Robert Houdin, who, who we can talk about a bit later. But he was, he was really skilled. And the most exciting thing about him is that not only was he a great technologist, he was also you know, called the father of modern magic. So what really lifted him away from all the other people at the time was he was able to interweave the two. So one of the things that I've been exploring is in a world where we have all these new and exciting technologies, what, you know, where does this next sort of Robert Houdin come from? You know, where's, where's the, the new face uh, ways to talk about and to do magic, but using and taking advantage of all the modern technological trends that we've got? Sure. For me, the residency has been a bit more specific. Um, the technology I've been looking at grew out of being invited to speak at Nesta's Future Fest. So I was asked to perform on the, the future of deception. Um, and I became interested in what magicians would be performing in, in the year 2050, because that was the year they were interested in, which is a long way ahead. Um, but I investigated what are known as thought identification technologies. So technologies that at present enable us to tell what somebody's thinking in terms of if they're thinking of a number or a word or a video or even an emotion. We now have the ability to detect those. These are very big technologies at the moment, not very portable, not very practical for a, for a magician, um, but they'll get smaller. So we, there will come a point where everybody can read each other's minds. So I knew that I wanted to make a mind-reading technology, a mind-reading device. And I wanted to use the idiomotor response because that's, it's a, a feeling, a response that people uh, have experienced for thousands of years that has a magical feel to it and that there's a history of magicians using. And it's a very simple way of doing a kind of mind reading. At the same time, I was interested in the future of robots and personal robots. So I knew that I wanted to give this device a character. I tried lots of different... Um, first of all, a butler. The idea was a robot butler that could read your mind and anticipate your thoughts. Um, I tried lots of different animals, none of which suited um, until I came up with the idea of using a bird. Because birds have had this relationship with man. Um, they talk to us. They do nice kind of loud squawking interruptions. There's a certain comedy to birds. But there's also a deep mystery to birds. They've always been messengers of the gods. And there's a history of automata, of mind-reading bird automata. So what I've ended up making um, are a couple of mind-reading birds that approach mind-reading in different ways. Mike, if I can just bring, a new, bring you in from the university side, what, what, what's interesting 
um, in terms of ma the magic magicians for the computer science department at Bristol University? There are a range of interesting aspects to this. Uh, we started off from the point of view that uh, we build a lot of technologies which are kind of clunky, like Stuart was describing, big and, uh, and cumbersome. And one of the ways of us understanding how to develop those into smaller, more portable versions is to think about different applications that we might use them for. So we were interested just purely uh, to start with from the, from the point of view of getting some of our technologies out of the lab and into performative situations. That enables us to understand what ways we might be able to develop them, use them in different ways. I think we started from that point. Um, that actually became, I think, less and less important to us as we became more and more engaged with magic as a particular phenomenon. Uh, the more I thought about it during during the residencies, the more I've come to the conclusion that actually technology and magic have really interesting and quite precise relationships. Particularly, uh, technologists uh, uh, such as ourselves in the in, in the Department of Computer Science spend a lot of time imagining ways in which the things that we build will get used or hidden from the people that we uh, that we give them to so there are uh, there are some technologies we create which are deliberately interfaces to people They're, you know they have properties which we hope will be get picked up design properties which we hope will get picked up by the users of the things that we make and then there are things which we deliberately hide from those people so we we make things which operate very efficiently but are supposed to do so in the background and hidden from view and in in many ways the the, the ways in which magicians kind of weave narratives for the audience and narratives for themselves, you know, into into the same performance is really appealing to me as a as a designer of technology because it parallels the kinds of design process that we use. Um, one of the great things about magic, I think, is that it liberates you to some degree to decouple you, the narrative that you present from the narrative that you undertake as a performer, or the craft of the performance, and that's a very liberating experience compared to the one we're used to, in which we have to precisely engineer the narrative which we present to users and it has to work almost independently of our performance of it and, and so I've, be, I've been really interested in thinking about ways that we could perform our technology as a way of designing new kinds of computer interface so there are a myriad of links between them but all of these I find interesting. You guys worked with um, universities or in this way before is this a, a new experience completely for you? It, it's new for me to work with a university in this way um, but up until uh, 2009, I was a, a 0.5 senior lecturer in digital media design. And before that, through the 90s, I worked in various aspects of digital media and interaction design. And it was around then that I started kind of banging on about the links between magic and interaction design. There was a paper by Bruce Tuganzi um, in 93 about magic and interaction design which was and it was around 93 that I started working in interaction design so that was a very influential even though now looking back it's a fairly shallow paper at the, at the time it got me thinking about, about magic and technology in 2002 um, I'd been a judge on the BAFTA Interactive Awards for a couple of years and during the judging I, I kept comparing all the entries to to different forms of magic and different aspects of magic design. Um, I think so, so somebody listened and recommended me to be a, a Nesta fellow. So Nesta funded me for three years to look at the synergies, links between magic and other aspects of design. Um, so I've worked with a lot of universities doing what I call designing mystery workshops. Um, I find the word mystery is better than the word magic. Um, it opens, opens a bigger box. Because, I mean, in the popular imagination, magic conjures up a performer 
doing tricks that the audience or the person watching goes, wow, you know, how did, how did you do that? That's, um, you know, it's mysterious, but it's a performance. Um, but of course, as you said, Kieran, there, that, um, was it Houd Houdan? Yeah, Robert Houdan. Robert yeah. Houdan. Um, of course, we, we'd behind that would be using technologies, I, I guess, then to as part of the the illusion. So th that interesting relationship always been there. Yeah, hundred percent. I think that's what's really exciting, and something that Mike picked up on, which is really interesting, is the different narratives that are at play when you're doing any kind of illusion presentation or performance. So on the one hand, there's an individual narrative you have as a performer. Um, so in theatre, you'd call that almost like your silent script, which is the thing that you're saying in your head as you're doing something. But then you've got the actual presentational narrative that you're putting forwards to, to an audience. So we've got, and there, there are another layer of narrative, which is the actual nature of the structuring of the interaction that's going on. That's one thing that magicians are really good at, right? Is thinking about how do I design the behaviours around the illusion that they're presenting, whether that's behavioural control or perceptual control or, or those sort of things. There's something else that's come forward really strong on this kind of narrative point for me from this residency, which is that, you know, like for, for me, if, if magic's going to work, it's got to do two things, right? It's got to break the rules, but it's got to do so through some supernatural force, right? And that supernatural force is a really exciting place to start digging around because you basically say, how does the magic happen? And what's interesting, if you look at back at, for my, in my opinion anyway, all the really strong magicians or mystery makers over time, the way that they do that is they don't just draw on like wiffle dust or clicking their fingers, yeah. They've got a really exciting societal narrative which is causing that change. So if you go back to like the, the turn of the 20th century, you've sort of got these guys who are talking about like mesmerism or spiritual, you know, spiritualism, this whole kind of ethos, right? And then if you go on a little bit further with Yuri Geller, whether you believe him or not, um, you know, he's, he's presenting this psychic thing because there was a massive interest in psychic ability around the 50s, 60s and 70s. And then and you look at what are those really pressing narratives that cause the magic to happen. And for me, that's another really important part of presenting a believable illusion. With Yuri Geller in particular, was it a point <coughs> when technology was really evolving, you know, in the sense that, you know, you could then send somebody to Mars? or to the moon, you know, the technology, computers and all that, but Yuri Geller was about, like, um, there's no technology here, it's... And th yeah, this is really interesting. So this is one thing um, that we chatted about quite a lot, like Stu and I chatted about quite a lot on this residency, is saying, well, actually, right, if you think about magic having to break the rules, technology doesn't have any rules to break, because frankly, it's already magic. <laughs> yeah, couldn't do anything, right? Well, electricity mm -hmm. is magic, yeah, let's face it. it. Yeah, yeah. How, how, does, it get, how yeah. does it get there? It disappears and reappears, right? <laughs> yeah. so, I, I, I disagree with that. <laughs> Um, yeah. th there's this oft-quoted, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic yeah. um, quote, which I particularly dislike yeah. um, for a couple of reasons. The first one is that it's a tautology. Um, any sufficiently advanced carrot is indistinguishable from magic. That's what sufficiently advanced <laughs> means. Um, but more seriously, it tends to be used in conjunction with what I think is a, a kind of culturally patronising idea of how people experience new technologies. Yeah. And you might say kind of flippantly, oh, electricity is magic because, you know, how does it work? And, and that's, that's true in a, in a kind of deep level. You don't understand technology, electricity. I don't understand electricity. But I don't think there's ever been a point in my life where I've genuinely thought that a new technology must, that, that really must be magic. And it tends to be linked with there's a tribe somewhere. Yeah. That there's a tribe somewhere who saw a light bulb and fell to their knees. Um, yeah. So I think we have to be careful about how we sure, use the yeah. word magic. So, so, yeah, yeah. No, no, but that's my point, exactly that, about what, what is the story that you're presenting about how this works? What's the force? What's the supernatural force that this is? And like, actually, I just put 
I was writing a blog post on this yesterday. There's like we've got really lazy by calling things magic because mm. that's that's just like a shortcut to saying well there's something and it's like well actually no 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 there's something deeper underneath this. That, yeah. that but but it is a it is a way of understanding something by not understanding it. It's a way of yeah. Like yeah, 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 yeah. But it's also yeah. yeah, and it is just giving like a lazy label to yeah. what is what is going on underneath that process. The other right? thing to add to that is I think one thing that has been very evident to me. Um, in this residency is that magicians tend to think that we own the word magic mm. it, you know in the same way that a physicist really owns the word quantum and if anybody uses the word quantum wrong they get annoyed mm. and, I, and I'm guilty of that a bit myself but then you know my brother might go to Disneyland and come back and say oh it's magic mm. and he doesn't mean that he was fooled mm. um, there's a, there are broader uses mm. of what we mean by magic mm. than what magicians mean mm. yeah. and we may be moving into a time that's more similar to a an older time when not knowing how the trick is done isn't necessarily important. One of the reasons I was interested in idiomotor response is that it still feels strange, eerie and weird when you know how it's done. And there have been times in the past when that's been true of magic. And there are, there are some other cultures where being fooled by that strong man on the stage isn't such an important framework. I mean, there are so many uh, parallels with film because, you know, the the idea that when film started and the train came towards the screen that everybody ran out the cinema screening. I don't think there's any evidence that that actually happened. But it's a popular, it's a popular uh, myth, which was about the performance, the entertainment, you know, the mystery, the, you know, all that. Before going into film, though, I just want to ask about the residency itself. What, what, what has the residency involved for you? You know, as you, you know, we come into the Pervasive Media Studio, you come in here at Watershed, what's, what's the day's activities and, you know, what have you been exploring, testing? My, yeah, mine ended up being a, a game of two halves, if you like. The, the first half was very much about trying to work out ways that we could accurately measure true idiomotor response. Um, looking at lots of different te technologies to do that, failing in lots of quite interesting ways, and then ending up feeling a bit like Columbus in you know not not finding the route that he was looking for, but discovering America on the way. Um, so about halfway through developing this Id Idiobird robot, we discovered a different way of looking at idiomotor response and a way of measuring people's ability to be good at idiomotor response, which we then called the idiomotor quotient. So what I've spent the second half doing is designing and building Ouija Bird. Ouija Bird is a, it's a combination of um, a magic prop, a scientific device, a, a game, and a Ouija board that can contact a bird from, an, from another dimension. It's less of a magic device than Idio Bird, um, and it's more to do with playing games and, and testing an ability. Um, so, so from, so from my point of view, like, the whole thing was around looking at this kind of idea of maker magic and how you support and engage uh, magicians and others to, to use uh, more technology, I suppose, as part of their magic, both as a presentational narrative, but also in the actual mechanics of, of achieving illusions themselves. So, so I spent a lot of time doing a lot of making with the guys at the university as well and just kind of coming up with crazy new ideas, everything from like a smell hack where we tried to use 
just all different types of smells, all the way through to having a big, like a magic hack. And a hack is essentially bringing together a bunch of technologists, and in this case, a bunch of magicians, and having them working together over two days to kind of create new possibilities. Uh, off the back of that, we've got a big kind of resource, uh, makeamagic.org, which has kind of got support for magicians to think about how they can start and example projects to get involved in, as well as kind of reaching out to the community a bit and talking about it. And that's been a really interesting journey in itself, actually. <laughs> it's about how people have responded to this idea. So one of the things we put forwards, we floated, um, and the term's not quite right, but, but the, the idea is interesting, is, is open source magic, which is that in a world with, with Google and where you can look and find out pretty much how any trick works on YouTube, what is that bit that the magicians bring, right? And, and there's this great um, uh, quote, which uh, Steve reminded me of from, from Jim Steinmeier, isn't it? Yeah, who was like, yeah, magicians are guarding an empty safe. And the idea is that actually the, the secret isn't the thing. And you know, Stuart's alluded to this already. The, the, the secret isn't actually the thing. It's all the layers that a magician brings on top of that, the presentational layers, the narrative layers, all those other sort of areas that, that we've talked about already. So that's a really interesting idea, right? Because if we're looking ahead for the future of magic, you know, what is it they bring? Magic is design interaction. Magic is an outward-facing thing. That's something which, which has become really evident for me. I think for the first time actually for this during this residency, you know, so so it's really been about a more sort of opening up. Absolutely, and actually, it's been really great to work on on that kind of buffet of technologies in in with that kind of lens on them, really, because uh, obviously part of the reason our, our department exists is um, to try and educate people about computers, and, and we have substantial undergraduate populations we're trying to educate. But actually, one of the great ways you, you can take technologies that appear to be quite cutting edge that we that we make is to try and present them in this kind of open source way and uh, an open source magic has been a really great opportunity for us to take technologies and actually explain how they work without sort of feeling that that's you know problematic in some way or that's inaccessible in some way so we do have technologies in our lab that do appear to be relatively baffling about how they operate and and, and some of them require relatively complex understanding you know of physics and computers uh, to, to understand. So, for example, we have a technology called Ultra Haptics, which is a technology which uses ultrasound to generate um, the feeling of shapes or points of tactile perception in midair. And you can use it to move sort of very lightweight objects around independently of touching them and those kind of things. And it, so uh, things which have relatively what you might describe colloquially as magical properties. Um, but actually, we're not interested in hiding that that behaviour actually one of the great things for us is how you expose that behaviour how you how you explain to people in an accessible way how that works and how you can open source that to, to the world and so actually this is a really great channel through which some of that has happened and that's been really really great for us I still have no idea how it works <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's witchcraft it's witchcraft <laughs> <laughs> it's evil and so th there's a, an opportunity for the um, public to see some of the results um, you're doing a public event on the 4th of December. Absolutely, 4th of December, 6pm at uh, in, in the watershed. Uh, yeah, if you go into the uh, iShed uh, website, they should be under the events on that one, and probably on the watershed website as well under events. I heard yesterday that there were only nine tickets left. My goodness me. Sling up to uh, get, get a move on then. Yeah, <laughs> it should be really good fun. The, the conversation that we've had, I mean, talking about technology and illusion, um, uh, you know, just in the layering and storytelling, it just obviously resonates with cinema. And we're sat here in the cinema whereby the audience are looking at a screen where an illusion appears. Um, and behind that is a projection box with technology. And you, you, you think back to the early days of cinema and directors like Georges Mille, who came, you know, through performing in magic and, that relationship seems really rich and interesting. You say a bit about 
those early days of cinema and the relationship with magic? Yeah, there's a, it's, there's a great question in, in here for me because one of the things I do is, is run a sideshow um, where, I, where I show the, the strange thing. So I'm used to standing outside a tent and barking at people to get them to come in. And I know that that's the way that a lot of the early films were shown. Um, magicians who bought the early projectors introduced them into their shows and then found that it was the best trick. So I, I know sometimes the, the history of magic is written such that there was this Victorian golden age of magic where magic assemblages of different sorts operated at all levels of society and magic was the big entertainment. And then cinema came along and, and blew that away. But in fact, the way I look at it is that cinema came along and just carried on the tradition of illusion um, and just was the best trick. But the question I've been asking myself is what I would have done if I'd been a magician at the time and I'd got my hands on one of the projectors before everybody else and I'd taken it to something like Westmoreland County Show and nobody there had seen a, a film projector before, although they would have seen things like Magic Lanterns and perhaps what the butler saw machines, those kinds of things. How would I have presented it? Would I have put the projector in a box so that nobody could see any of the workings and then projected the film and left the how to be a complete mystery? Yeah. Or would I have shown the machine but not explained the workings and left it to be some kind of a mystery where people could see the move, some of the moving parts? Or would I have explained it and then shown the film and shown it as a demonstration of wonder and one, I think one of the things that's interesting about that time is that there was very little distinction between a magic show and a demonstration of science. So I'm still not sure which tactic I'd, I'd, have, I'd have taken. Um, and I think of um, the Pepper's ghost illusion when that was demonstrated by, by Pepper. His initial intention was to demonstrate it through staging a Charles Dickens play, which had a ghost in it. He was going to show that, then come out on stage after the play and explain how the illusion worked. But the audience was so bowled over by the whole effect that he decided not to tell them. And I've written about this in the past as Pepper's good decision. Because he didn't tell the audience, we had about four years where Pepper's ghost illusions were a feature in, in, in several theatres around the country and were explored in different ways. Whereas if he told the public at the start, would we have had that same kind of exploration? You know, the fact that film was being used as part of performance is really interesting because you can tend to view the history of film as being separate and being developed technologically over here by the you know Lumiere brothers. To then moving into the theatrical experience that we get uh, today, but actually it's been part of the performance. And you had um, filmmakers like Mitchell and Kenyon uh, up in Yorkshire that were going to fairs and recording people and then they could come back the following week and see themselves as part of this. So it's a film has been presented as part of a, a, a theatrical and, performance. And, and you had performers like Houdini who were using film as a way of verifying the, the, the veracity, demonstrating the truth of their performance. So Houdini would get on stage and say, you've heard stories that I escaped from a box thrown into the local river, and now I'm going to show you a film of, of, of me doing it to prove that it was true. So it was, film was used by magicians as a convincer that they'd really done something. We're going to be exploring um, the early days of cinema and its relationship with magic in uh, an event on <clears throat> Tuesday the 3rd of December with Professor Ian Christie, who's a historian of cinema. Um, and that's an opportunity to explore more in this area and to look at some of the work of Georges Mealy mentioned and R.W. Paul.
um, and talk about that transition. But we're also screening some feature films which have magic uh, within them or as part of the story. Or do you want to just say something about the some of the films that we're going to be screening? Well, I'm I'm going to be introducing uh, Orson Welles's F for Fake. Orson Welles was a very great performer of magic. Um, one of the things I like about Welles's approach to magic is that he's very slow. He really takes his time over an, over a trick. And I think it's something that I think Di Vernon might have said. Most things in magic were said by Di Vernon. <laughs> um, if it wasn't, it could be said. It was. <laughs> yeah. Um, that um, there are very few magic performances that can't be improved by going more slowly. Um, but it takes a really strong character to go as slowly as Orson Welles does when he presents magic. And that relates to the way that he makes films. You can, you can see that pace and that slow grandeur that never gets boring um, in, in a lot of his films. But also the way he uses very simple special effects, not, not in a tricksy way, um, but the way that he'll keep certain things hidden and reveal them later on. He, as a magician, I can see Wells's magician's eye when, when I watch his films. And then I think also, so you're looking at, you've got The Illusionist, which is screening, and something like this, um, Prestige as well, I think. Yeah, so The Prestige. So what I think is beautiful about this, and Stuart alluded to it earlier, this sort of golden age, this alleged golden age <laughs> of, of magic around the Victorian times. What I think that The Prestige does for me really well is really bring out that relationship between magic and technology and really talk about a time when things were. There was, there's this great... I think it's 1897 book about how magic is done. And one of the things is like uh, feats of natural science. And this is how some things were built, you know, and you had things like electricity being built as part of a magic thing. For me, it really highlights that tension and that exciting opportunity of a time when people were rapidly accelerating in their technological growth, but still have a very strong performers who are able to use that in their own performance. And I think that's a really exciting thing. And for me, that's one of the things that's always inspired us and, well, me anyway, and the residencies around that, that, that thing where we were in another time now, we've got breakneck growth of technology. And it's, and it's and it roll, those films roll that feeling together of what it looks like in a really exciting way. Uh, I'm, I'm on a bit of a mission to kind of let everybody know how many inventions were actually invented by magicians. Yeah. Um, you know, day glow. Clothing was invented by magicians. Caterpillar tracks were invented by magicians. It wasn't that magicians have always been using technology as part of the as part of their theatre. They they were involved in developing at the very start a, a lot of interesting technologies. The one that bugs me the most is that you see um, the first robot ever was supposedly created in 1939 by Westinghouse, but in fact two years earlier the performer Fu Manchu had a robot on stage that worked in exactly the same way. The robot could walk, it could talk using, a, using vinyl. His robot could do everything. It was more beautiful and it could smoke a cigarette. But it was built in, with exactly the same technology, so it wasn't that his was fake at all. His worked completely, but he's not in the history books as, as, as making the first ever robot. And this is the view of so, so thinking about that link between the kind of the use of, tech in, use of technology in people's performances, like within cinema as well, and going back further to Automata, you know, this is the classic thing about Robert Dan's, you know, his orange tree illusion, which is shown in The Illusionist and showcased. You know, it was one of the all-time great illusions, and it was a, a marvellous piece of clockwork engineering, you know, and if you talk about the history of robotics and going back and mechanised movement, you know, these guys were creating and pulling that stuff, you know, ahead of the curve it's just because they were doing it in a different environment just so they didn't sort of dress it up in scientific terms you know and, and that's that for me that, that's what those two films really capture for me yeah it's the essence of that time mm. and david mamet's house of games that we're screening i mean that's got a magician within it as one ricky of the, j mm. yeah 
who's a, who's a wonderful, incredible magician and, and a great actor as well. But the reason I was keen to that that film be included um, is because it's about deception um, as much as it's about gambling and, and everything else. Um, and it was a film I particularly loved when I was at university. I had it on a tape and, and would invite everybody around to watch it because there are two moments in that film that are really quite startling. And at those moments, I would always watch the face of the people I'd invited around to, to watch pennies drop. So deception interests me um, as a kind of broader thing that magicians are, are often interested in, is how you deceive and how you avoid being deceived. Well, it's a lovely one in the film The Sting, where um, Paul Newman's doing some kind of fancy card thing. So what happens is you get a shot of, of sort of Paul Newman and it scrolls down onto his two hands when they're playing a pack of cards. And they've actually got a, a famous magician at the time to come in and, and do the card work. But it's a continuous shot. So sort of one of Paul Newman's hands come out and the magician's hands come in, but you don't notice the difference and it goes out. So you sort of got this seamless change. You never notice it, which is that thing about deception, the beauty of it. But, you know, it looks like a seamless shot of Paul Newman doing this incredible card stuff, but it wasn't. They'd substituted in the magician and out before the shot comes back up to his face. You can find out more about the films that are part of the season, Magic and Illusion, screening in the Sunday brunches throughout December at Watershed website. Films are Orson Welles' F for Fake, David Marmot's House of Games, Christopher Nolan's Prestige, Sylvan Shomi's Illusionist, and finally, Martin Scorsese's wonderful homage to the world of Georges Mealy in Hugo, which we'll be screening in 3D. So thank you all very much, um, and you can see the showcase on Wednesday the 4th of December. Thank you.